Welcome back to the Core EM Podcast. Core content for anyone, anywhere, and just in time. This is the official podcast of the NYU Bellevue EM Residency Program. This week, we're going to discuss a couple of papers that we've reviewed in our conference this month. No deep dive here into all of the methodology of the articles, but we will include some foam links where our friends have already done some extensive reviews. We've got four articles to tackle this week, and they really span the range of emergency medicine. We've got an article on the significance of tachycardia upon discharge of pediatric patients, the utility of supplemental oxygen in ACS patients, predicting dysrhythmias in syncope patients, and finally, we're going to look at agreement on cardiac standstill amongst emergency physicians. Let's start with the wee little ones, tachycardia on discharge of pediatric patients. And the article in question here is by Wilson et al., is tachycardia at discharge from the pediatric ED a cause of concern? A non-concurrent cohort study. This was in the Annals of Emergency Medicine just this year, 2017. Tachycardia is a very common abnormal vital sign in the PEDS ED. Tachycardia can have a number of different underlying causes, including less concerning things like fever or pain or anxiety, but it can also be a sign of impending cardiovascular decompensation, which occurs in shock, sepsis, and cardiac dysfunction. The clinical question here was in patients less than 19 years of age, is tachycardia at the time of discharge from the ED or urgent care center associated with increased risk of revisit within 72 hours or the receipt of clinically important interventions or hospital admission on revisit? The study looked at 125,000 patients less than 19 who were discharged. Tachycardia was defined as over the 99th percentile for the person's age, and the primary outcome was unscheduled revisits to the ED or urgent care within 72 hours. Overall, about 3.5% of patients had an unscheduled revisit, and that number was 4.8% in the group with tachycardia at discharge and 3.3% in the group that wasn't tachycardic. This gives a relative risk for return of about 1.5 with a confidence interval of 1.2 to 1.5, so the risk of revisit was higher in the group that had tachycardia at discharge. This is a study, though, where the secondary outcomes are important to review. These were clinically important interventions on return visit or admission on that revisit. And I think that's a more important endpoint, but again, that was the secondary endpoint in this particular paper. That rate was basically the same between the tachycardic and the non-tachycardic group, 25.5% versus 24.5%. And additionally, there was no difference in admission rate on revisit. The authors conclude that discharge tachycardia is associated with an increased risk of revisit. It's likely that tachycardia at discharge is not a critical factor associated with impending physiologic deterioration. Our bottom line is pretty similar. If serious causes of tachycardia have been addressed, pediatric patients with isolated tachycardia at the time of discharge may be safely discharged. This means that you shouldn't hold a peds patient in the ED simply because they've got a little tachycardia as long as you've addressed any important concerns. Let's move from tachycardia in kids to oxygen and ACS. The study reviewed was Hoffman et al. in the New England Journal of Medicine, Oxygen Therapy in Suspected Acute Myocardial Infarction. The clinical question here is, is there a mortality benefit to routine oxygen therapy in patients with suspected acute myocardial infarction who are not hypoxemic at baseline? Acute MI is a common thing that we see in the emergency department, and traditional treatment that was taught to many of us was MONA, morphine, oxygen, nitro, and aspirin. Morphine has really fallen out of favor for a number of reasons, and the utility of O2 in patients who are normoxic has seriously been questioned. 
The AVOID trial, which was published in circulation in 2015, demonstrated increased myocardial injury in normoxic patients who were given supplemental O2. But the primary outcome of interest in this study wasn't really a patient-centered one. Enter this New England Journal of Medicine study. They looked at a clinically relevant outcome, death from any cause at one year. This study took about 6,500 adult patients with acute MI and an O2 sat over 90% and randomized them to either get supplemental O2 or ambient air. The study was non-blinded, and the short of the long was that the investigators found no significant difference in the primary outcome, death at one year from any cause, regardless of whether they got oxygen or not, and there also weren't any differences in any of the secondary outcomes between groups. The authors conclude routine use of supplemental oxygen in patients with suspected myocardial infarction who did not have hypoxemia was not found to reduce one-year all-cause mortality. Our conclusions and bottom line are pretty similar. Based on this study and others, there doesn't seem to be any benefit to the addition of supplemental O2 to normoxic acute MI patients. And based on the AVOID trial, there may actually be harm. We do not recommend routine use of oxygen in acute MI. Rory Spiegel has a fantastic discussion on this topic over at the EM Nerd blog, and we'll drop a link to that in the show notes. Let's move on to article number three, discussing dysrhythmias in syncope. The article here is by Thirogana Sambandarmuthi et al., predicting short-term risk of arrhythmia among patients with syncope, the Canadian syncope arrhythmia score. This was an academic emergency medicine again in 2017. Syncope, or the sudden brief loss of consciousness followed by spontaneous, complete recovery, is a common presentation in the ED. We see this almost every day. It represents a significant portion of overall admissions to the hospital because while many of the causes are benign, things like vasovagal syncope, some of them result from life-threatening causes, and in particular, we're concerned about ventricular tachydysrhythmias. Admission or 24-hour observation is often sought for continuous dysrhythmia monitoring, but they're infrequently found. A decision instrument directed at stratifying patients to high or low risk for dysrhythmia causing syncope would be useful in managing these patients. The clinical question addressed here is, can a decision instrument be developed for predicting 30-day risk of dysrhythmia or death after ED presentation for syncope? The group performed a multi-center prospective cohort study looking at over 5,000 patients with syncope and worked to derive a clinical decision tool to predict the rate of dysrhythmia or death at 30 days. They ended up with eight pieces to their rule. Vasovagal predisposition, history of heart disease, any systolic blood pressure under 90 millimeters of mercury, a positive troponin, QRS greater than 130 milliseconds, QTC greater than 480 milliseconds, and an ED diagnosis of vasovagal syncope or cardiac syncope. We'll drop a table in the show notes with all of these. If the patient had a score less than zero, because some of the factors could actually give you negative points, the negative likelihood ratio was 0.05, which, let's be honest, that's pretty fantastic. The positive likelihood ratio here wasn't nearly as good. Any score greater than zero had a positive likelihood ratio of just two. I've got a number of concerns on these findings, and you can check out a post that we put together on Rebel EM a couple of months back. It's also on the Core EM site. One of the big ones is that the cohort of patients wasn't all that sick overall, and they may be different from the average syncope group. Regardless of all the detailed strengths and limitations, the decision tool needs prospective validation before we'd even consider bringing this into our clinical environment, and it should be compared somewhere along the way to clinician gestalt to see if it adds anything substantial. 
the authors conclude the Canadian syncope arrhythmia risk score can improve patient safety by identification of those at risk for arrhythmias and aid in acute management decisions. Once validated, the score can identify low-risk patients who will require no further investigations. Our bottom line is a bit more measured. The prospective derivation of this decision instrument is a positive step towards risk stratification of syncope patients for subsequent dysrhythmias. It is critical to remember that there are numerous other causes of syncope, ectopic pregnancy, PE, ACS, aortic dissection, GI bleeding, and so many more. And all of these need to be considered when we see these patients as well. Additionally, because this population in the study was relatively young and healthy, evaluation of a higher risk cohort would be useful in future studies. Finally, let's move on to our last article, A Little Ultrasound in Cardiac Arrest. This is by Hu et al., Variability in Interpretation of Cardiac Standstill Among Physician Sonographers, Annals of Emergency Medicine 2017. Point-of-care ultrasound, or POCUS, has gained wider use in resuscitation of patients presenting with cardiac arrest. POCUS can play an important role in determining the etiology of arrest, as well as being used to determine the presence or absence of mechanical activity. The reason study demonstrated that patients with PEA or asystole without cardiac activity on POCUS are extremely unlikely to survive to hospital discharge, though this study did not investigate the more important question of survival with a good neurologic outcome. In light of the evidence from the reason study, as well as other evidence, some have proposed that the absence of cardiac activity may be adequate to declare resuscitation futility and stop resuscitative efforts. However, there is a lack of agreement on what defines cardiac activity. Due to this and other factors, the level of agreement between physicians in the interpretation of cardiac standstill is unknown. The clinical question is how much variability exists in the interpretation of cardiac standstill on POCUS amongst physicians. The research group here performed a convenient sample survey of EM, critical care, and CARDS residents, fellows, and attendings. The group survey looked at 15 ultrasound clips and then had to state whether the patient was in cardiac standstill or not. Agreement here was only found to be moderate. This means that while it seems like a simple question, standstill or not, we couldn't completely agree on the answer. I had a chance to chat with Phil Andrus, one of the authors of this study, about why this may be. Phil's big contention was that because there are so many different definitions of what cardiac standstill is, and it's something that we don't do a good job teaching our trainees, we see some variability in making this call. For his money, Phil thinks the definition should be something simple and should be the one that Romolo Gaspari used in the Reason paper. Cardiac activity is any visible movement of the myocardium other than isolated valve movement. So cardiac standstill would be the absence of any myocardial movement, including isolated valve movement. It's vital for us to agree on a definition of standstill if we're going to lead good ultrasound-guided resuscitations and if we're going to get meaningful research on the topic. The authors conclude, according to the results of our study, there appears to be considerable variability in interpretation of cardiac standstill among physician sonographers. Consensus definitions of cardiac activity and standstill would improve the quality of cardiac arrest, ultrasonographic research, and standardize the use of this technology at the bedside. We generally agree with these conclusions, and here's our bottom line. The use of POCUS to declare death and stop resuscitation is predicated on a clear ability to establish the presence or absence of cardiac standstill. The low level of agreement of providers likely reflects the absence of a single unifying definition of standstill, as well as calls for increased training and assessment. 
a unified definition of standstill would be extremely helpful not only in future research, but more importantly in cardiac arrest care. Let's wrap up with some take-home points. Tachycardia impedes patients at discharge was associated with more revisits, but not with more critical interventions. If your workup is reassuring, isolated tachycardia in and of itself shouldn't change your disposition. Supplemental oxygen is not necessary in the management of acute MI patients with an O2 sat over 90% and may be harmful. Until further study and prospective validation has been performed, we're not going to recommend embracing the Canadian decision instrument on predicting dysrhythmias after a syncopal event. And finally, our agreement on what cardiac standstill is, isn't great. We need a unified definition going forward to teach our trainees and for the purposes of research. Well, that's all for the Core EM podcast this week. Come on over and check out the site at coreem.net. We've got a ton of great core content emergency medicine. We'll have a core post up on Wednesday and a journal update up on Thursday. Don't forget to check out our Facebook page, follow us on Google+, and on Twitter where our handle is at core underscore EM. Thanks, and see you all next week.